the scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The famous passage where God makes his covenant with David, the last of the major Old Testament covenants. Our text today will be verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses, verses 12 through 29. Hear once again the very Word of God. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all the words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you would have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your words word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name? and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation, and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and your blessing, and with your blessing, let it let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven. We thank you for this example of prayer by David, your servant, king of Israel, the one with whom you made a covenant that 
is being lived out even now in your Son Jesus Christ at your right hand, making intercession for us. We thank You, Father, that You never forget Your promises. That You bring them to fruition. Even in dark days when it seems as if no one bows their knee to God, You are working Your holy will to to bring glory to Your name and to benefit Your people. Father, help us to have the, the faith to believe these things, to believe the promises that You've made to us and to our descendants after us, just as You made to David and descendants after him. Father, help us to believe those promises and act upon them by faith with courage and thanksgiving in our hearts. We ask this in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. Brethren, the day before, or the Sunday before election day, typically is a Sunday where a sermon on election is preached. Uh, that's not going to happen today in large measure, although there will be an application at the end of the sermon with regard to the election. But we're continuing in this, uh, in progressing through 2 Samuel, this life of David, because his life is very very important for us to to follow in many respects when he's faithful and to be warned by when we are unfaithful, as we will see in just a few weeks. The last time we were in 2 Samuel 7, we considered the importance of the Davidic covenant, the last of the great covenants found in the Old Testament. We considered the importance of the preservation of the Davidic line extending to our Lord Jesus. We considered that in Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, that the everlasting nature of God's promise to David is preserved in our Lord. We also considered the promise of mercy and grace being extended both to Solomon and to his lineage, and is also extended to us through Christ, who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Today, we shall look at David's response to this profound promise. God's everlasting covenant to God's faithful, patient servant, David, that reaches down to us as well. David's response is a prayer of thanksgiving. His prayer may seem short, but it rehearses the profound glories of God in the midst of God's graciousness toward David. I shall emphasize three aspects of this prayer, which does not even begin to touch the benefit it has for us. The aspect of this prayer that I want to briefly consider is the first being the posture of David when he takes counsel of God with thanksgiving in prayer. The second point is the repeated reverence David shows toward God in acknowledging God's sovereignty, providence, and love toward Him and and all Israel. And then lastly, I want us to consider the communion David has with God in this prayer. The communion David has with God in this prayer. Again, I know this is the Sunday before Election Day. There will be an application for the election at the end of this sermon. And this may seem a bit odd given the text. Yet it is my hope that the application will be an encouragement to you not only for Tuesday of this week, but in the coming four years. Well, let's begin with the posture of King David as he goes before the Lord in prayer. 
In the very first verse, we have mentioned, well, the first verse of his prayer, which is found in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said. Before we get to that phrase, I want to rehearse a little bit for us of the history of Israel at this time. Just before King David goes before the Lord in prayer, the prophet Nathan is describing the covenant God is promising to David. Remember that the Israelites have been reunited under King David. Shortly thereafter, the Philistine army, the greatest enemy of the Israelites at the time, attacked the Israelites at the Valley of Rephaim and are soundly defeated by Israel on two different occasions. Remember, too, that the field is swept of the idols of the Philistines by the armies of God. David then returns to his palace in Jerusalem and turns his attention to domestic issues rather than the geopolitical concerns that he had with the enemies around Israel. And his first thoughts go to worship. Think about that. Here's a man of war, and when he defeats the greatest enemy that he has, the Philistines, and returns to his palace in Jerusalem, where does his attention turn? It turns to worship. Such is the case of a faithful man. A man whose heart is after God. God is never far from David in this regard. He always wants to please the Lord in his, the ways he walks. He will not always do that, but his desire is there. And it's evident when he returns to Jerusalem after these two battles in Rephaim. His first thoughts are on the worship of God and the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle. Well, after some interesting circumstances, the ark is returned and is placed in Jerusalem in the tabernacle. David is then struck by the seeming discontinuity of his palatial residence in comparison to that of the place of the ark. He, David, lives in a palace made of cedar, but the mercy seat of God is in a tent. David wants to remedy this. He wants to remedy this circumstance by building God a temple in Jerusalem, the city of peace. God intervenes and reminds David that God, the God of the universe cannot be contained in a building built by the hands of men. Nevertheless, God allows David's request, but not by his hands would that temple be built, but by his son, Solomon. And not only will a temple be built for God, the house of David will live forever as those who sit on the throne of Israel, the kingship of Israel. Brethren, David is communing with God at this point. He seeks to do to honor God with his own hands. And God halts that and gives that to his son, that privilege, but the promise extends to David and his seed after him. David is doing what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. David is seeking first the kingdom of God. He wants to honor Yahweh. Over and over again, he, he, he speaks uh, the Lord Yahweh or Adonai Yahweh in this passage. Over and over, he, 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 he emphasizes both aspects of God. His lordship and that he's the God of the universe. He's the keeper of all things. 
He is His Lord, but He's also His Creator and His God. He's seeking first the kingdom of God. And we should not lose sight of the fact that David has a heart after God. And when he returns from defeating the enemies of God, David's attention has turned again to seeking the kingdom of God and righteousness in its fullness. That's his desire when he comes back to Jerusalem. Well, brethren, this harkens back to the, God, the covenant God made with David's forefather Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to make two references to Genesis 15 today. The first is here. In Genesis 15.1 we read, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That God Himself is His exceedingly great reward. That's what's happening in the life of David right now. A, a promise has been given, been given to him, and he, he, God Himself, is David's exceedingly great reward. Is He not? Who is going to sit on that throne? But God Himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. David's reward, the lineage of His promise, is Jesus Christ, the living God. God is His exceedingly great reward. Just as God said the same thing to Abraham. Because Jesus would be the one who is personified, living by faith unto death. Just as Abraham lived by faith, Jesus would personify that as well. And Jesus is Abraham's exceedingly great reward. The living God is our reward. And here is the evidence. Often when men go before the Lord God in prayer in the Bible, as David does here, they are found prostrate before God. But that is not David's posture, is it? David is sitting before the Lord in verse 18. What does this tell us? This is not a presumptuous reclining before God on David's part. No, this is a man who is at peace before God and is in a familiar place communing with God in prayer. Often when men are prostrate before God in the Scriptures, when they come into His presence, it's because God is either on the verge of or in the midst of bringing judgment upon men. And those who fall prostrate before God are pleading for God's hand to be stayed, for His wrath to be turned. Often that's the case. Here... God has already, through David and the, the armies of Israel, defeated the enemies of Israel. David's at peace. And he's in a familiar place. Remember, just before he goes to Rephaim to fight the Philistines, he seeks the face of God. Both times, he seeks the face of God. Do I go down to Rephaim and fight with them? The first time God answers yes. Go right, right to them, face to face, right up front. And you will sweep the field. And sure enough, that's what happens. The second time the, the Philistines come again, he goes to the Lord asking for guidance. This was a familiar place for David. Prayer. Seeking God's guidance. Seeking His face. Communing with God. It's a familiar place. Second time he goes, what does the Lord say? No, I want you to go to Rephaim, but I want you to go behind the enemy. And when you see the tops of the mulberry trees blowing... 
then, then you know it's time to attack, and you will attack them, and you will prevail. And sure enough, that's what happens. And that we, we saw was a, was a foretaste of the Spirit of God going before the church in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Spirit of God indwelling us and going before us, strengthening us for the battle to which we are called. I, I point all this out to say David spends t- lots of time in prayer. This is not an unfamiliar circumstance. It's not unfamiliar. In fact, it's commonplace for David. And, that, and he's at peace, and that's why he's sitting. It's as though he's reclining before the Lord. Where does that happen in a covenantal situation later, after the Davidic covenant? How about the New Covenant? When Jesus establishes the New Covenant on Maundy Thursday, Mandate Thursday, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. He gives us a sign and a seal of a covenant. What's the description of the disciples at that time before the Lord? They reclined at the table. They reclined at the table. This is a foretaste of what we have in Christ. We're seeing a picture of what's coming later. Though David is sitting before God when he prays, David's words are not presumptuous or haughty. And this brings me to the second point. David shows great reverence before, the God in this, before God in his prayer. Just because it's a familiar place doesn't presume that he can be uh, casual about his talking with God. Again, over and over, he mentions Lord and Yahweh. Adonai and Yahweh. God, my Lord, and God, my Creator. He has a great reference, reverence for God. Not only is he reverent, but he's full of praise. In verse 18, David shows his humility in posing the question of, Who am I? Why did God shine His favor on David? It was an act of God's pure grace. David was chosen as a humble shepherd and elevated now to the highest place in the kingdom of God, the King of Israel. And why was it that he was chosen? David's asking that very question in humility. As David then contrasts the humbleness of God's creation to God Himself. What are men that God is mindful of them? And this harkens back to his psalm, Psalm 8, uh, psalm eight or yeah, Psalm 8, verse 4, where we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? David uses the same phraseology and codifies it in the Psalter for us so that we can sing it over and over. And then David recounts the transcendence of God in his person and attributes in verse 22. There is no God like the God of Israel, he says. You are unique. You are the one true God. Though he's in a familiar place in prayer with God, communing with God, he doesn't presume that it's a casual acquaintance. He's talking to the living God. It is his Father. It is his his precious One. The One whom he confides in all the time. But this is the God of the universe. Rather, notice that David's prayer is laced 
with David recounting God's promises both to himself and to all Israel. His gratitude before God for the specific promise to his household is not extracted from the promises of Israel, but included as part of the promises of Israel. God, you are working all your holy will through your people of which you've made me a part. And I'm privileged and grateful. And again, we have to go back to his first words. Why me, O God? Why would you choose me? How many times have you posed that question to God yourself? God, why have you chosen me for salvation? I look around the world and it seems like other people would be more deserving than me, and yet you've been gracious to me. You've humbled me that I might be lifted up. That should sober each of us. David has that same kind of sober attitude as he comes before the Lord in prayer. God has placed His name on Israel. We see this toward the end of the prayer. Just as He placed His name on us as part of our baptisms, we bear the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our baptisms. Our children are learning not to take the Lord's name in vain in their catechetical training right now. What does that mean for us when we bear the very name of God? Do we take it in vain? Have we been brought out of darkness into light for no reason at all? Or, as our catechism teaches us, the shorter catechism in the first question, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This makes those two phrases have meaning to us. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Remember, He is the reward for Abraham. He is the reward for David. He is our reward when we are counted as sons of the living God, daughters of the living God, join heirs with Jesus Christ. And this brings me to the last aspect of David's prayer, which is one of communion with God. It's, the whole prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. I mean, we're in the right season for this. Maybe I should have waited a couple weeks to, to preach the sermon, but... We'll have another sermon on Thanksgiving in just a couple of weeks. I want us to take a step back though into, into the garden and remember that from the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, communion with God was profoundly interrupted. Communion with God was profoundly interrupted. A great gulf was fixed between man and his Creator. And from that moment on, communication with God was no longer easily accomplished. Remember, it had been the case prior to the fall that God walked with mankind in the garden. Communion was immediate. Communication was immediate. It wasn't something to which a gulf had to be overcome to do. Man was expelled after the fall and communication, communion was disrupted. Profoundly disrupted. Such that the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead things can't communicate, can they? When an animal dies, communication's lost with it. When a person dies, communication's lost. There is no communication. Jesus Christ came to restore communion with God, communication with God, living with God, walking with God like in the garden. And He did a good job at that. 
bringing about that communication and that communion. David experienced that communion with God, looking for the Savior, which was his reward, according to the promise. He's looking for that Savior that was promised by God. Remember, I said this prayer is laced with promises of God. David believes God, and it's accounted to him for righteousness' sake. He is a man after God's own heart. He lives in communion with God because he trusts that the one who will restore that communion, who will build that bridge over that great gulf, is coming and will accomplish all God's holy will. Brethren, as children of God, as joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as we being the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, who tabernacles with us, we cannot be any closer to God in communion, even though we see through a glass darkly, as Paul describes. We are where David was. We are in communion with God. He's not afar off. He's immediately with us. His Spirit indwells us. His Word is at our fingertips. Who's communicating with us? Has not God been, been particularly diligent to commune with us? Why not we communing with Him? Are we as diligent as He is with us? Of course we aren't. We can't be. We're not God. He's faithful when we are not. He does things when we can't. He's omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. And He does all His holy will. Do I get an amen for that? Amen. And we are not. We are none of those things. And so we, we, we don't commune as we ought with our God. But... It's not because access has been denied. No, access is the reality of where we are. That's, we are in Him, the Bible says. We abide in Christ. He is our reward. As He was Abraham's reward and David's reward, He is our reward. Prayer for us is and should be a constant state of communion with our God and Creator. This is why Paul teaches us to pray without ceasing. When David was faced with profound circumstances like the Philistines gathering in the valley of Rephaim to attack Israel, David sought the wisdom of God in prayer, and it was given to him. Here in our text, God has bestowed on David an everlasting covenant promise. And what does David do? What he always does. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He goes to the Lord thanking God for this great provision. And he seeks first the kingdom of God as a man whose heart is after God. We think of his heart was after God as being some, somehow following. I, I look at it as pursuing. It was, he was going after God all the time. That's where his heart was. Prayer for David is a familiar place and a familiar activity because it has become an habitual joy. The joy of communing with God. And this is David's example to us today. Is prayer that familiar to us? 
Is prayer our go-to position in all of life? Our default position? Whether it be times of trauma and trial and testing, or times of joy and adulation, is it, are, are we going to God with both of those things? In thanksgiving and in trust and in faith. Whether in trials or testings, joys of God's blessings, we are to commune with God, recounting God's eternal promises to His people who are called by His name. Think about this, brethren. Is God going to defend His own name at all times? Well, of course He is. And guess who He's given that name to? You and me. He will defend that name at all costs. And His will will be done. You should take tremendous comfort in that. Be assured, brethren, God will defend His name until every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that brings us to the election. I shared with the men at our Bible study this week the promise God made to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 15. I mentioned that we'd be coming back there. Well, we're, we're back to Genesis 15. And beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 16, God, has, God is recounting to Abraham some of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, but he makes a statement there that seems so puzzling to me, but I think is indicative of what we're facing in just a few days. Beginning in Genesis 15:13, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's the phrase that causes me so much wonderment. God is saying, I'm going to put you people in bondage for 400 years, and afterward you're going to come out with all kinds of possessions, and you're going to get a promised land that you don't understand. It's going to be a blessing beyond your counting. But this is all because the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Boy, that's an odd phrase, isn't it? Do you see, though, that God's plans are not our plans? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But all His holy will works to His glory and the benefit of His children. I don't know why God gives us the choices we have this coming Tuesday. I have no idea. No earthly idea. But, that doesn't thwart His promises, does it? When those votes are cast on Tuesday and hopefully Tuesday night we'll know the, the results. That may, Who knows? It may be like several years ago when it took weeks before we actually found out the, the end of it. But let's assume Tuesday night, late Tuesday night, we have some idea of how it's going to come out. If it's one candidate, we're going to be dis- well, I'm going to be disappointed with both of them. But suffice it to say, 
there's probably going to be greater disappointment with one over the other. Even I'll admit to that. But does that thwart God's purposes? Does that run afoul of God's might and His omniscience? Does that... Is he, is he going to be wringing his hand in some small corner of the universe as though I can't do anything about this? Oh, I sure hope these people can survive. No. Our passage today, look with me at the beginning of this, of this prayer. I've got so many pages up here, they're all mixed up. Just a moment. Where is it? Oh, here we go. David, verse 18. Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought, this, brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord. And you, also spoke, you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? This is a small thing in your sight. This is... It's almost as if David's saying this is an afterthought and yet you're going to keep this promise for eternity. God is not going to wring His hands on Tuesday. Not at all. In fact, He's going to be very thankful that His will has been done. And we should be the same. Now, we don't know what it's going, how it's going to come out for the people of God, but you know what? Whatever it happens, it's for our good and for His glory because we know that the Scripture says, All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. We ought not to wring our hands on Tuesday. We ought not to fret, regardless of the outcome. God puts down His enemies and He raises up those who bear His name. And that's going to start again anew, afresh, on Tuesday. And that's where our confidence should be. Not in men or women, whatever the case may be, but in the living God, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord God. Let us pray.